It's a great time this morning to be together and to open the Word of God once again as we have the privilege to do. Not everywhere in the world has the privilege that we have where we can come into a building and actually open the words of God and know what the mind of God is. And I want to begin our time this morning with a statement. Oftentimes when we go to churches, we we want to hear things that will make us feel good. Well, I can assure you this statement will not. But the statement is this, God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming, and more importantly, God's judgment is right. It is right. Now, if that statement be true, and it is because it is biblically accurate, then that statement alone ought to cause our minds to be really transported in our thoughts of God to His absolute perfection and righteousness. If God's judgment is coming and God's judgment is right, then God has to be perfect and completely and absolutely righteous. However, the natural tendency of us as humans, whether it's collectively or whether it's individually, is to really deny that fact outright or just ignore it as a fact that God's judgment is coming. We just simply ignore that or we we don't think it'd be true at all. But the fact still remains that judgment is coming. It is coming. Humanity can stick its collective head in the sand and ignore it, turn its back on it, try to say it isn't happening, but inevitably society will have to pull its head out of the sand. And when it does the fact of judgment is still a present-day reality. You can try to ignore it. You can try to get away from it. You can try to say it isn't a fact, and yet the reality is that it is going to come. And so, as people, these ought to be sobering thoughts for all of us. We live in sobering times. We live in the day and age when truth seems to be relegated to the back seat. All of humanity has an appointment one day with God. In fact, I'm intrigued by Hebrews 9.27. Hebrews 9.27 says, It has been appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. I mean, you can deny that judgment's coming, but you certainly cannot deny that death is coming. I mean, death is coming to all of us. It is a reality. We see it simply in nature itself. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it has been appointed. The word appointed is an interesting word. It means to be stowed away stowed away, or to be laid up, to lay away something. The writer of Hebrews is reminding all of us that the day of judgment has been divinely laid away, set aside for a moment, for that time that comes after physical death happens. In other words, God has set it in stone, and it will always be an unchanging reality for every person. The question that is before all men, and the question that is before us, that all men must grapple with each and every day is this, upon which will this judgment be based? If death is coming and judgment is coming, then upon what will this judgment be based? 
the text that we return to this morning begins to answer that question. Because it acknowledges the inevitable reality of judgment. It acknowledges what is to come. And it answers the age-old question as to the basis for this coming judgment. On what will this judgment come and on what will it be based? If you're not there already, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Because we have learned already in our study of chapter 1 that the non-religious world, the non-religious people of the world, they are guilty before God. Judgment is coming upon them and they are in fact guilty. They are guilty because God in His graciousness through His creative power, and as we read in Psalm 62, God has all power. Through His creative power, God has made Himself known to all men everywhere. It doesn't matter where they live on this planet. They have the the reality of God's knowledge through general revelation given to them by what God has made. We saw that in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 1. God, in His graciousness, has put on display His invisible attributes. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what He has made. So when mankind looks around at the created world, God and His invisible attributes are clearly on display. Because they are on display through God's gracious creation, They show all men that there is indeed a divine creator who is worthy of their honor and worthy of their praise and worthy of their worship. And even though in that, even though in reality men know that, they have refused to acknowledge him and to worship him. And so they are without excuse. Verse 20 says, they are without excuse. They are, in fact, guilty before God. So that is the essence of chapter 1. And as we have moved to chapter 2, the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, is now shining that light of exposure, that, that piercing light of interrogation upon the heart, and, and specifically upon those during Paul's day who were considering themselves religious people. This would be the majority of the Jewish populace at the time, those who were Jews by ancestry and those who were Jews by conversion, those who were proselyte Jews by way of their own conversion to Judaism. This is who Paul is now addressing. This is who Paul is now laying the foundation of their guilt before God. But not only the Jews, not only those of Paul's day, but any and every moralist who lives. Because really that's what the Jews were. They were simply moralists. They had a religious standard and yet they lived in a morality that looked at everybody else as if they were not moral people. That's what a moralist is. A moralist is simply concerned uh, with, with the way others do things in reference to how they do things, and they prop themselves up based upon that standard. And so Paul wants all moralists to be indicted, not just those who might be religious, not just those who are churched people, but all men who consider themselves to be unguilty before God. Why? Because they do not specifically live out those kinds of things that we read about in chapter 1. You look at verse 28 and following, and, and while they do not acknowledge God, God gives them over, and so they're filled with unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice and gossip, and they're slanderers and haters of God. And someone can come from that list and go, well, I don't do that. I'm a good person. 
wider sense, Paul is speaking to all people who might consider themselves innocent before God. But specifically, he's dealing with his fellow countrymen. Specifically, he's dealing with the Jews. They not only had the revelation of God through creation like all humanity does, but the Jews also had been given God's special revelation. They had his word. They had been given the oracles of God initially through Moses, uh, reiterated to them over and over again through the prophets. They had the law of God in writing. They had God's special revelation, and yet they had redefined it. They had refined it to their own purposes. They worked to appease their own guilty consciences. You see, you cannot escape your conscience. Your conscience continually bearing witness against you as to the morality that you know to be true and right. And the Jews knew that. And to escape it and appease their own guilty conscience within themselves, they, they refined it and they redefined what God had said. But that never appeased God. Might have appeased their own conscience, but it never appeased God. Their outward acts may have looked good to men, may have looked good to themselves in line with everybody else who was living in that way. Man, we can be an expert at hiding what is true before other men, can't we? We can be experts in that. Who we are truly in our heart, however, will never escape the watchful eye of God. Ever. You can appear outside as one person and you can look good on the outside and everybody will think you're all, oh, you're just such a good moral person and yet on the inside you're as dead as anybody could ever be. God always sees with the eyes of truth. Always sees with the eyes of truth. That's why it says in chapter 2, verse 2, when we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. In other words, God judgment is coming and God's judgment will always be according to truth. So don't think that you're going to escape that. Don't think you're going to escape that. So judgment is coming even upon the religious moralist who appears better than the rest of the sinful world. And it's in our study of this chapter that we are learning why this judgment will rightly fall. Why will it fall upon them as well? Now remember, I, I, I've been telling us that Paul gives us four reasons why. Four reasons why, or at least this is how I've outlined it for myself as I think through Paul's thinking. Reason number one was just simply this, flagrant hypocrisy. This judgment of God that is coming will come upon even the religious moralists because of their own flagrant hypocrisy. And we saw that in verses 1 to 3. And it can be really summed up this way. God's moral standard is known. God's moral standard is known. The, the religious moralist has it in writing. We have the word of God. The Jews had the word of God. And yet, within the heart of man, the moral standard of God has been placed. You know right and wrong. And it is even claimed to be right by every religious moralist or by every moralist who has ever lived by the personal application of it to others. You want to prove what your moral standard is? That you have a moral standard? By how you look at other people. How you judge other people. But for the moralist, it's only a one-directional judgment. It's used to judge others as wrongdoers, which proves they know a moral standard, but never applied to self. And since God, in verse 2, always judges according to truth, then this judging truth will also come upon them. And so their flagrant hypocrisy shows the necessity for judgment. The second reason we learned last week, and that was just this, self-deception concerning God's mercy. Self-deception concerning God's mercy. Verses 4 and 5. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? 
not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The self-justified, the moralist, believe that God doesn't judge them. And in fact, the reason their life goes on on this earth with, with, with limited problems is, because, is proof that God doesn't judge them because they're good people. In fact, God would never judge them because they're good people. Simply because they're good enough not to be judged in their eyes. They're self-deceived. Self-deceived. They're like a man who's born blind and yet continually claims that he can see. He's never seen. He's never seen anything in color and yet he claims that something that is some other shade is the color that he believes it to be. Self-justified are just like that. Deceivingly convinced that their good life is not a result of God's patience, but rather a result of God's reward for their good living. In other words, it's because they of their own inherent goodness rather than the purpose of God giving them time to see their sin and repent of it. So God is justified in His judgment of them because of their flagrant hypocrisy because of their self-deception concerning His mercy. There's a third reason that Paul gives us, and I want to focus our attention on that this morning in our time left, because God's judgment, here's the reason number three, God's judgment is based on the heart that produces living. God's judgment is based upon the heart And it's out of the heart, Proverbs tells us, that life is lived. We could say it this way. God knows the internal motive for what is done externally. God knows the internal motive for what is done externally. And even the best motives miss the mark of God's standard. God sees the heart from which the springs of life flow. Notice verses 6 through 11. Paul reminds the moralist that it is God who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Now I want us to remind us, I want to remind us of something as we begin this passage. That when we stand before a holy God in judgment, you will not be standing there with others with you. It will be individual, it will be personal. You will be by yourself before a holy God, and you cannot say, Well, I'm just like everybody else. You will never be able to rightly say, Listen, I'm better than those people. You will never be able to rightly say, It's because I grew up in a Christian home that I should be okay with you, or because I went to a church that I should be okay with you. Listen, you will be by yourself. says he will render to every man according to his deeds. God's judgment will be based upon the deeds of man because the deeds of man are the product of what is in the heart of man. And that is what Paul is introducing to his Jewish brothers. 
He isn't speaking here about what produces salvation in man. Don't, don't make that mistake. He's not talking in here and saying, oh, if you do these things, you will be saved. That comes in chapter 3. That comes in chapter 3 of how to actually find salvation or, or to be saved. What Paul is referring to here are evidences of salvation or really evidences of the unsaved, the moralist. This is very important when we look at this section in Paul's gospel. It's imperative that we keep in mind, particularly when we think about this, we keep in mind two essential factors that are taking place here in these verses, or at least in the mind of Paul. And I say this because if we're not careful, just in a cursory reading, I mean, just when I was reading those verses, I'm sure in your mind you, you were tempted to at least go away with the deception and the belief that it is by an outward deed that a man can and does stand justified before a holy God. But I want to assure us that Paul in no way is implying that by his words. In no way or in any other implication in Scripture is it implied. In fact, it is explicitly spoken against in chapter 3. Justification is by faith alone. And most of us know what Paul says to the believers in Ephesus in chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If it is a gift of God, the it there is the antecedent of faith. Faith is a gift of God. Justification comes by faith. As we look at this passage, we cannot allow our minds to gravitate to any form of heretical teaching of justification by works. And so we have to have that in our minds. And with that in our minds, let's begin to explain these two essential elements that we have to keep in mind, okay? We we can't gravitate towards works, so what are the elements we have to keep in mind as we think through this? in order for us to gain a greater understanding of why God is justified in judging even those who appear to be good, who appear to be moral, who appear to be even religious people. Essential factor number one is this. It is God who ultimately judges. It is God who will ultimately judge, not man. Okay, God will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, this may seem insignificant for us at first. But the implications of it for our life are monumental. Verse 6, he will render to every man according to his deeds. That truth ought to be for every Christian. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, that very truth right there alone ought to be a source of great comfort for you. And for every non-Christian, it ought to be the source of great fear. Why? Because it's one thing to stand before men and have men render some kind of judgment against your life and not be able to see your motives for why you did whatever it is you did. It's one thing to stand before a, a, a tribunal of humans get a verdict, but it's entirely another issue when it is the creator of the universe rendering a judgment. And the true heart behind our deeds are being judged. Personally, individually, alone. You and I can only judge what we see. We judge the outside, but it is God who sees what is on the inside. And that will be judged according to the absolute truth of His divine Word. It's so easy for us to watch others in the human realm. 
to, to see their actions and to look at the consequences of their actions. We know what the Bible says. The Bible tells us to be discerning. The Bible tells us to, even, in fact, to be judging. Judging with the, the judgment of God's judgment. To be discerning in those things. To make biblical judgments. To be like as we read in Acts, the Bereans, and take everything back to the Word of God according to truth, be testing, test speech, test actions, test it all according to the truth. And yet at the same time, we can only actually see the outside. And there are times when the outside looks really good. It appears to be genuine, but on the inside it's totally rotten. Just thinking of this as I was thinking of this passage, and I thought, man, that reminds me of when my wife wants to feed me apples. She likes to give me apples. I'm not a huge apple fan, but she likes to give me apples. And sometimes, you know, you ever you ever gone to the apple bin to get an apple, and you look and you survey the apple bin, and you pull off an apple that looks really good, and then you bite into that apple, and it's rotten on the inside. See, your moans, just you know exactly what that is. You're ready. You're ready for the juice to burst out upon you, right? That first bite, oh, this, this, this apple juice is going to come screaming out of this thing. It's going to be so good. And when you sink your teeth in it, you quickly find out it's rotten. There's no juice. It's just that milly, brown yuck. That's our judgment. That's the kind of judgment we have. Our judgment can only go so far. We cannot see the heart. But that is exactly the part that God sees. He sees the heart. He sees the motives that are behind the outward appearance. And just listen for a moment what God's Word says about His judgment. Job had a lot of friends that brought judgment upon his life. They looked at the outside. They looked at the consequences. And Job, all their judgment was a bunch of hooey except for the last one. Job 34, verse 11, He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. The indication in that passage is that God has not been mistaken. He only does what is just. I read it this morning, Psalm 62, the entirety of that psalm. The entirety of that psalm extols God's righteousness and judgment, but particularly verse 12. Right? Verse 12 says it this way, Loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you pay a man according to his work. It isn't that the outside is the thing garnering the reward. It's God judging the motive behind what's on the outside because you can have two apples that look the same, one be rotten and one be nice because the inside's totally different. So with God, a mistake is never made. God will always render to every man according to his deeds. What God does is according to his divine and righteous knowledge of the heart according to truth. It rightly falls. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, Isaiah 3, verse 10 and 11, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked! It will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. Once again, God seeing the trueness of what produces the action. Jeremiah 17.9 says it as clear as anything. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then verse 10 comes along and says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. 
who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers into the lap of their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. say, well, that's the Old Testament God. No. According to the New Testament, Jesus brings the same truth out. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in, his, in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then pay every man according to his deeds. One of the most telling passages of all in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul warns the Corinthians, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose, get this, the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Listen, motives will be disclosed. Proper judgment will fall upon the deeds of men. Those things produced by the motive of the heart. That's what Paul's talking about. And so Paul contrasts the acceptable heart and the heart that will be condemned. That's what he's contrasting here. And this is the second factor that we must remember in this text. First, it is God who does the judging, and God is judging the deeds, and what produces those deeds is the heart. God sees the heart behind them, and the essential factor number two is this. What is listed here in verses 7 and following are evidences of salvation, not the means to salvation. Let me say that again. These are evidences of salvation. Salvation, or in the case of the unbeliever, non-salvation, not the means to salvation. In other words, the heart that is truly saved, someone who knows Jesus Christ by faith, the person who truly has a relationship with Jesus Christ, willingly and patiently perseveres in doing that which has the quality of God-produced goodness. That's really what we're talking about. Notice verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. The word Paul uses in the original language is hupomone. That's the, the word translated perseverance. Some of your translations might use persistence. Some of your translations may say patient continuance. I think all of those are good words. They, they carry basically the same idea of hupomone because what Paul is meaning is this. The heart and the persons who receive eternal life are those whose lives are evidenced by a constant pursuit for what is of the highest good. Not perfection, but direction. Okay, The heart that perseveres in these things, the heart that is after what? Specifically, notice verse 7, Paul listed for it. The heart that produces the kind of willing persistence, even in the midst of trouble and even in the midst of difficulty, is the heart that desires, first and foremost, God's glory. You see that? To those who, by perseverance and doing good, seek for glory. Glory. A person who does not have that as their greatest desire shows the true condition of their heart. They cannot be a believer. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This is our highest drive. 
you remember what God's glory is. The glory of God is the very nature of His essence on display. His very character on display. Moses said, can I see you? God said, you can't look at me and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And God lets His attributes pass by. His glory pass by. It's the essence of who He is on display. And when a person is displaying God's glory through them, they are displaying the very character of God, the desire that God would be seen in their life. It's the glory of God. That is the evidence of a justified heart, constantly striving first and foremost for glory, not your own glory, not so that people would praise you, not so that people put you on a pedestal, no, but for the glory of God in whatever it is you do, in whatever it is God would have for you in your life at whatever moment you are in at that time. Those who seek by their doing good for glory in God, eternal life. There's a second character here. They continually seek, notice, honor. Honor. Again, not their honor among men. Not their honor among men. But honor given by Christ when we see Him. It's not that so men would go, oh, how great you are, but that so when you see Christ, Christ would say, well done, good and faithful servant. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Peter says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see? When you pursue continuously those things because you know Jesus Christ in your heart, you pursue for the honor of, of, of your own life before God and before Christ in that way, you show a genuine relationship to Christ. Not seeking for your own honor among men. No, no. You're seeking that Christ would be glorified and honored by you as He honors you in front of Him. The glory, honor, and the third evidence Paul states here is immortality. Immortality. Every true believer in Christ, get this, every true believer in Christ desires, desires and continually longs for the day when this mortal body will be swallowed up by the immortal. Right? The writer of Hebrews says, you want to, here's how you live. You fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Paul said this to the Colossians, seek the things above where Jesus is at the right hand of God. Have your focus on eternity. Have your focus on that day when your mortal body will be swallowed up with immortality. Why Paul waxed so eloquent in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the resurrection with the Corinthian believers. Listen, you have the wrong view. You think the here and now is the issue. You need to think about the resurrection. You need to have your mind focused there. It is to those that the gift of eternal life in the presence of God the Father will be granted. Paul goes on to say, by way of stark contrast, that the actions of those condemned also shows the conditions of their heart. It's here that Paul sheds some light on what he means in verse 7 when he says patient endurance or perseverance, right? What produces patience? What produces that patient endurance? Because in verse 8 he tells us, Notice, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. You see that? 
There's, there's this obedience to the truth, a desire to obey the truth in those that have eternal life. Those that don't have eternal life want nothing to do with that. They're selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. That's the heart of the unredeemed. I don't care how moral you are. It doesn't matter what your morality is, what your religion is, or anything else. By the way, the word used here for selfishly ambitious, interesting word, it carries the idea of a mercenary. A mercenary. Someone who's hired to carry out some harmful duties simply based upon their own money for money and for pleasure. That's what a mercenary really is. A hired killer, uh, an assassin of sorts. So when a mercenary is hired to go out to a foreign land and carry out an act of violence upon somebody in that foreign land, there's no regard by them concerning the issue that might come about or the harm that they might do upon the things that are done. The only thing in a mercenary's mind is, when this is over, I'll get paid. That's it. In other words, everything is done for the purpose of self-serving. That's what it says here. But those who are like mercenaries. The unredeemed heart is driven not by the continual pursuit of God's glory, not by the continual pursuit of honor before Christ. When you see Christ at the day of your your uh, uh, of His revelation, or by uh, or immortality, the seeking of the immortal. No, what what drives the 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 unredeemed is simply self-focus. What do I get for myself in this? And, Paul says, an inobedience to the truth. The unredeemed want nothing to do with the truth. The person who wants their own way naturally resists the truth of God and God's ways. In fact, the word there means contentious. They fight against the truth at every turn. That's the reality. Their mercenaries are for themselves. They do whatever they do for themselves and they fight against the truth at every turn. Listen, check your heart with this. How often do you see in your own heart a fighting against the truth? When the truth speaks and you know it pricks you hard, do you fight against that? That's the same heart. Because of that, Paul says they obey unrighteousness. They obey unrighteousness. Notice there's no middle ground. You notice that? There's no neutral zone. There's no, oh yeah, you're righteous people and you're the unrighteous people and those in the middle, they're trying to decide which way. No, there's no middle ground. There's only two kinds of people. Godly and ungodly. And the outside isn't the determining factor the inside. There are righteous and unrighteous. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Serving God means that you obey Him. To not obey His will is to obey another master. To obey another master just shows where your heart really is. And therefore, there's continual disobedience That continual disobedience is rewarded with, in verse 8, wrath and indignation. By the way, that's the two words for wrath of God. Orge, wrath, and thumos, which is indignation. Thumos is like a thermometer. Orge is that settled wrath, that settled anger of God that continually stacks up with your stubbornness of heart. And thumos is the lashing out of that wrath. So you get wrath and indignation, you get both. Notice, verse 9, it's rewarded with tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Greek. doesn't matter, religious moralist, moralist without any religion, or just flat-out non-religious. doesn't matter. It's coming your way. Tribulation, flipsis is the word. Pressure, that's what it means. Constant pressure. You want a picture of hell? Here it is. Flipsis, tribulation, and distress. You know that word distress is really the word for a narrow place. An unescapable narrow place. 
You want a taste of hell? Think about this. Never being able to escape the guilt of your conscience weighing upon you at its maximum degree forever. Forever. That's what you're rewarded with if you do not obey the truth. Ellipsis, no escape. Pressure and in a very, very hemmed-in place. But, but, verse 10, glory and honor Every man who does good. To the Jew first, also to the Greek, doesn't matter. Peace. That's that's conscience rest. Rest for your conscience. You can rest before a holy God. You have real soul rest. Why? Because God isn't condemning you. Your soul is at rest. Why? Verse 11, because there's no partiality with God. No partiality with God. Individually, personally, by yourself. It doesn't matter if you're non-religious or religious, immoral or moral. It doesn't matter. All will stand before God. Why is God justified in his judgment of even those who appear good? Because God sees the heart. God sees the heart. You cannot escape it. And only those whose hearts are new will produce what is right before God. Only a new heart can produce righteous deeds. And that comes through faith in Christ alone. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. It's God. God's infinite justice. And by His infinite grace, God will be faithful to bring glory and honor and real peace as a reward to those who persevere in doing good. They'll have true peace. But to the rest, no matter how good you may appear, no matter how good a person might be on the outside, it's only through Christ that the inside can be made clean. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew, doesn't matter if you're a Greek, it doesn't really matter who you are, Gentile or otherwise, the verdict will be the same. Continual wrath and anger from God. Because God sees your heart. And God is not partial to anyone. We shall all stand before God. We shall all be judged according to our deeds. And we shall all go to the one or the other of two destinies. There is no middle option. There is no purgatory. There is no place of waiting. So are you seeking glory and honor and immortality? Can you say, can you say, before God's all-seeing eyes that you are continually, patiently continuing in well-doing and that your greatest desire is after righteousness. If so, then your reward is eternal life with Christ forever. No tribulation, no narrow place. But if not, then there is the reality of an eternal existence under the tribulation and anguish that comes only from God's manifest wrath upon you forever. I trust that you're in the first place.
trust that we will meditate upon these things in our own heart and our own life as we stand before God even now. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this passage for it pierces down to the very thoughts and intentions of our own heart. Lord, you're the only one who can save. You have promised salvation in Jesus Christ alone, and you tell us, as Paul will tell us in the coming chapters, that if we will confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Once someone is truly saved and the Spirit comes to them, they will begin to live for your glory, for honor and immortality. No longer desiring to obey unrighteousness, to, to fight against the truth at every turn, but to enjoy the peace that only comes from Christ. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we thank you that we can have that hope. Thank you that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross and paid a penalty that we could never pay. Bore the full wrath of you so that those whom you chose to save and draw to yourself and grant the gift of faith would believe and begin to live according to what you have commanded and follow in the example of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. Cause us to desire that more than anything and that our allegiance would be there and there only. Help us, Lord, when we look at each other to judge rightly, to go to your word, to help encourage the faint-hearted, to exhort the unruly, to be a help to each other, to provoke one another to love and good deeds, that you might be honored and glorified in it all. Bring us back tonight to open the word again together. In Jesus' name we pray.